Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather in your word, and we just pray you bless these words. Speak to us in the inner man. Build us up. We know that there are probably a lot of burdens in the world today and in this room and with COVID and politics and everything else that's going on. God, we just want to be set free by the word of God this morning and be encouraged in our mission and our vision and that um, we would just walk out of here today with a being renewed in the spirit of our minds and encouraged in our faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, John chapter 8, and I'd like to look at this together with you. Um, we've been doing a series on the love of God. This will be number three uh, in a series. And um, John chapter 8, and when, whenever we want to look at the love of God, we want to really look at Jesus Christ. Because um, any theology that we have that is separated from the person of Jesus Christ is always going to is always going to enter into error. So, like, um, and when we interpret the Bible, when we read the Bible, we always have to. I'm sorry, Christian, I'm standing right in front of you here. <laughs> Whenever we are um, reading the Bible, um, we we always have to put Christ in the center of it. Now that may sound obvious, but for example, sometimes we'll read Old Testament stories. And we'll kind of just put, I mean, and that's encouraging seeing David's faith, David's courage, for example. But David is more of a picture of Christ than he is the believer. And what I mean by that is, is that, um, is that when we put Christ in the center of all of our theology and every time, and how we read the Word of God, it's always going to encourage us and build us up in a, and we call it a Christocentric. So, John chapter 8, and I just want to read the first 11 verses, and I just want to say, I want to say three things this morning to, to you. God comes to history. God comes into history. He does not handle history. Okay? God comes into history, and I'm going to explain these in a minute. He doesn't come in to handle everything. Okay, number two, Jesus has no handles. Jesus has no handles. We have handles on mugs. We have handles on briefcases, on bags. We have handles on, on our car, our steering wheel. Uh, and people can have handles. Jesus has no handles. And we'll explain what that means in a minute as well. And then number three, the hands of Jesus, the hands of Jesus are painfully neither open nor closed. Now, these are three very interesting statements. Um, probably a lot of question marks are going off in your mind right now. But I want us to, if you just follow me, if we read through John chapter 8, um, let's start at verse 1, okay? John chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll look at this very unique situation. Here's a woman. Uh, the scene is this, is that Jesus is in the temple. Okay, Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching. He's teaching in the temple, and there's a crowd of people around him. And he is sitting there teaching, and then this happens, okay? Jesus went from the Mount of Olives, verse 2. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Okay, got the scene? Jesus is in the temple. He had just come from Mount of Olives. It's early in the morning, early in the morning. Not a good time for this woman. And she gets caught in the act of adultery, and she's dragged in front of Jesus in this crowd in the temple. Like, is that crazy or what? Jesus is teaching. He's doing a Bible school class or something, right? And then this woman is dragged right in the front and right in the middle there, and... And then Jesus, Jesus is asked this question in verse 4. They said to her, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, remember those words, bent down, and wrote with his finger on the ground. Very often when you hear this preached, the picture is that Jesus is somewhere outside in the dirt with, his, with people, and he's writing in the sand. It's not happening in the sand. This is happening in the temple. And Jesus sits down, I mean, he's bent down, he squats down. All these people are standing, laying charge against this woman. It's a very heated, awkward, scary situation. Uh, there, Jesus' teaching has been interrupted, and then Jesus bends down with his finger, and he starts drawing on the floor, in the ground of the temple. And it was probably brick or stone. And so the picture here is that Jesus with the finger of God, is drawing on, on stone, which is a picture of the, the stony heart. And, and Jesus here doesn't say a word. And if we read on, it says this, and they continue to ask him in verse 7. He's quiet. He's silent. You know, the silence of Christ sometimes is more, it has more to say to us than if he had a lot of words and a lot of answers. And he was silent, and he continued, they continued to ask, and he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And some commentaries in the, in, the, in the original, they look at the original, and it's their opinion that Jesus is saying to this crowd of guys or people, they that are not guilty of the same exact sin, at least mentally, you can throw the first stone. And so, and so what happens here is that they begin to, when they heard it, and then he wrote... He bends down again in verse 8, and he writes on the ground, on the floor of the temple. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why do you think it was the older ones that first left? More experience of sin, right? The older we get, we're not getting, um, our flesh is not getting better. And Jesus was what? What does it say in verse 9? What happened? Jesus was what? What's it say there? Jesus was left alone with a woman left alone. I love that. This is an amazing scene. It's one of my favorite stories of the Bible. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Who, who has, has no one condemned you? And I love that because she said, no one, Lord, no one, no one, no one person, no one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And he's pointing at that sin. Don't do that anymore. So here's the, here's, the point, here's the first thing I want to say here is that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did God do? Did he march in and um, manhandle the situation? Did he march in and he was like, okay, God, I've got to get a grip on this situation. I've got to come in and I've got to throw my weight around this God. And like, you know, and, and like these people, these stupid creations, they don't understand who I am. And what, I mean, they, I gave them this utopia and they blew it. You know, and, and in every era of the Bible, God gives a command, and, and man blows it, and then God brings in redemptive vision. And that's the gospel. And no, he didn't come in like that. He came in, and he says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? I don't know if, I don't know where everybody's at in this room today. I don't know if there's things that are going on in your mind where you just feel like you're not making it, and you're failing. I don't know if you feel like you know better, and you're just, <laughs> and, you're, and you're doing worse, maybe? I don't know where, where you're at today. But one thing we can be sure of is that God's not going to march into your life 
grab a hold of you by the hair and just throw you around and manhandle you like a bully, like a belligerent, abusive father. That's not God. He's going to walk in and he's going to say, communion, communion. Had Adam repented yet? No. Had the woman repented yet? No. Very interesting to me. That Jesus walks in and he wants communion. He wants to talk. He's not there. And I think, the, and this is the first thing I want to bring into practical application. Human nature is, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm, I'm in a position of authority. I'm a pastor. I'm a leader. I'm a dad. Or I'm a boss at work. Or I'm a very talented individual. And I know my stuff. And I'm just going to walk in. And I'm just going to deal with this situation. And I'm so angry about it. And, 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 and we walk in large and in charge. And guess what? God does not do that. God doesn't do it. God doesn't do it. He doesn't do it in missions. He doesn't do it in ministry. He doesn't do it in family. He doesn't do it in our personal life. You ever wonder why God hasn't chastised you yet? <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever had that thought like, man, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, why has God like, why hasn't God just like wiped me off the face of the earth yet? And I remember I was in Bible school and that's not the last time I asked God that question, by the way. I can agree with Michael. It's a question I often ask God. And I said, God, why haven't you killed me yet? You know, I'm so filled with unbelief. I'm so filled with sin and failure and all this stuff. And you know what? I just, I was walking. Remember, I'd walk to 7-Eleven to buy a coffee and I'm walking back and God just said, because you are going to experience victory in that area of your life. And I'm looking at that day. And number two, because Christ paid for that. And he said, he said, just keep going. You're going you're gonna to make it. I remember when I went to Bible school, our pastor said to this, he said, you know, some of you are struggling with things that are going to be, God's going to heal you in one, one year. Some of you, it's going to take years. It's going to take years. And that's okay. Moses needed 40 years. And then he needed another 40 years. God walks into history. God is, God is why he's a paraclete, right? He's coming alongside. Jesus is the, he's on the road to Emmaus with all of his disciples that are, that are in doubt and in dis- discouragement. And they forgot, they forgot all the messages that they heard for the last three years. And then Jesus comes alongside and he's walking with them to Emmaus out of Jerusalem. One of the most amazing stories of the patience and the forbearance of God. And Romans chapter 2, the patience and the forbearance of God, it just leads us to change our mind about the craziness in our life. God comes to history and he does not handle things. Like he doesn't come in and large and in charge. And, and number two, Jesus has no handles. What does that mean? You know, if we look at a cup, I don't have any cups here or I don't have any props. But, you know, like everything that we, everything that we have that we like to use and the control that has any form of power to it has a handle, right? Coffee cups, our guns. I was just thinking the other day, I was, wanted to buy a gun. And I have to be careful it's being recorded, so I don't want to. I wanted to buy a gun, and I was just trying to figure out how to buy a certain gun. And um, I remember how the first time I held that one, it was an AR, I'm sorry, okay, AR-10. <laughs> and I remember when I held it, that feeling. I don't know, do you guys know what I'm talking about? No, absolutely not, right? Just that feeling, the ergonomic grip, and you know, just that feeling of power and control, and like nobody can take advantage of me. And this is what the flesh is thinking. And, and like, I don't want to get into the topic of guns and all that stuff, but having a car, I mean, the steering wheel in my, I have a truck, and I, I love the steering wheel, the way it grips. Um, you know, my bike when I'm cycling, I like, you know, the, the, 
when I'm, when I'm riding on the horns. I like the grip. I like the feeling. That feeling that like I can turn this in any time I want, being in control. And Jesus himself had no handles. And there's two things I want to say about this is that, um, and by the way, before we do that, I just wanted to say three things real quick about Jesus's approach to the woman that was caught in adultery. Number one, um, he was very respectful. Do you notice, you notice that? He was very respectful. In the, in the Middle Eastern culture, and it still exists today to some measure, is that the woman, the, woman is not, the woman is not at the same level as the man. And we see that in a lot of cultures today. Jesus comes and he speaks respectfully to this fallen woman. When we fail, when we blow it, when we have been caught red-handed, you know what I'm saying? God doesn't come in and he's not there. He's not there to pour fire on our guilt. He walks in and he speaks to us like a human being with dignity. And he says, you have dignity. I think um, as a new dad, I'm learning a lot about how, what it means to raise up my son and lead him. And I've been thinking a lot about this is that when we discipline, when I discipline my son or I speak to someone in my family, like I want to speak to them in dignity. Because punishment is that act of reaction without dignity. Godly chastisement or godly discipline is when God comes in and says, says, I respect you even when you don't respect yourself. I'm respecting you and I'm going to speak to you. He stands up. He stands up. In, in, in American culture, this is not really a deal. But overseas, when we lived overseas, um, you know, when, when someone approached you and you're sitting down, you stand up. And you're talking to them face to face. And then when you in, in Poland, when we lived in Poland, after we would eat dinner at a table, and because because Poland is a little different than the United States, there's not so much personal space. A lot of times you're eating at tables where there are people that are eating at the same table that you don't know at a restaurant. And when you stood up, they would always say thank you. They make eye talk contact and just say thank you. Thank you for just allowing me to be here. They don't they don't say, they just say thank you. Jesus comes to us, and he, he understands our human dignity. This world does not understand your dignity as a human being. And the system doesn't understand your value as a human being. And this is why we have issues with racism and gender issues. And this is, the, this is why we have problems with classes of individuals like the wealthy class, the uneducated. I mean, all of these classes. And God approaches. And so... And so there's three things about the posture of Christ. Look at the posture of Christ. He bends down. He stands up. The gospel has a posture. Think with me about this for a minute. The gospel, the grace of God has a posture. And when he's talking to the accusers, what he's doing, he's bent down. And that speaks to me so much. You know why? Because God is not speaking to the accusers from this big position. Like, who do you people think you are? And it's because... The Pharisees believed that they had a handle, that they had a handle on the law of Moses. We got this. We got this. Is, this is in our grip. We understand this. And we're able to whip this around. We're able to use this as a weapon against people. And we're able to use this as our personal justification, our own platform. They felt like they had a handle on Moses' law. And the posture of Christ is this. He does not come in large in charge. He comes in bent over. He's bent over. He's bent over. And that's the theology. That's the theology of Christ. That is the teaching of Christ. It's a teaching that comes in like this. 
You know, my, our son went to this new school for the first time this week, and um, and it's so cool. It's a Christian school, and it's right down the road here. And he's coming out of a out of school that we just didn't feel like it was right for him, and the approach was wrong, and and just his needs were different. And so I took him to school, and of course, if you if you're a parent and you take your kid to school, it's your first time. You wonder how this is going to be. You know, you're waiting for the call, for the phone call first day, like come and get your kid. And so, you know what, they, I, I brought Caleb in, and the, there was two teachers, one teacher there signing in the kids, and there was another teacher, she was on her knees, and she was hugging each kid as it came in. Big hug. On her knees, right down on his level. This is what Jesus did with this woman. He spoke to her on her level. The Bema Seat of Christ, which is the, the Greek word for the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema Seat of Christ, in the Roman government, the Bema Seat was a seat that was not like the big throne, but it was like a seat that was maybe a few inches off the ground like that, so that when the judge sat on the seat and faced the party that came for some kind of um, justice or retribution for being wronged, this famous seat, the judge would sit there, and the judge, as he's seated there, he is, he is looking at the, at, the, at the individual that has been wronged eye to eye. That is how God deals with us. He came as a man. He did not come as some god or some angel to throw his weight around and to um, and so the gospel has body language, it has a vocabulary, and there's a spirit behind it. You know, sometimes people tell me like, you know, I've just been all around. I can't really find the right place. I've been some to awesome, awesome, you know, awesome circles of individuals, but I can't seem to find. And you know what it is? It's the spirit that we're looking for. We're looking for the spirit of Christ. Like last night, you know, Saturday night here, sitting here during the worship, I just was so blessed, you know, and I know that some people may make the issue of like, okay, repetitive. Last night, though, we just sang this song. I don't know how many times we sang, he loves me, he loves me. He loves. And as we were singing it, it just got, I was like, okay, we've sung this a few times. But then it just started going deeper and deeper. And I was like, oh my God, he loves me. And it's like, began to, and, and, and begin to think of like the personable of personableness of Jesus Christ and his simplicity. Number two, Jesus had no handles. They said this to test him. They're looking for handles. You know, if people that have, that have handles in their life are looking for your handles. Because they're getting grabbed onto and they're being thrown around. And they're looking for handles on your life because they want to manipulate you. They want to control you. They want to be able to um, make you to make decisions because... Um, and this is Matthew chapter 4. Remember when Satan comes to Jesus in the, in the wilderness? And Jesus is like, he's there 40 days without food. Um, and he's tired, he's weary. And the devil comes to him and he says, and this is the voice of the devil all the way. The, 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 the voice of the devil always begins with this word, if, if. The voice of God in your life says, since then, because of, for sure, verily, verily, I say unto you, that's the voice of God in your life. And the devil comes to Jesus that if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, the devil is looking for Jesus' handles. He's approaching, he's addressing his identity. And you know something, if you ever want to um, hit the core of somebody's soul, begin to, uh, begin to offend their identity, whatever their identity might be in. Begin to question that. And you're going to start seeing someone who doesn't know who they are in Christ looking for the handles. Jesus had no handles. And he said, if you're the son of God, it's like this. Sometimes people will say to you, hey, you've got to get a grip 
on your life. You're going to get a grip on this situation. You ever hear that? I'm sure you have. Or sometimes we've said it ourselves. I've got to get a grip on this. Why? Because we're looking for the handles. Jesus had no handles. Therefore, he couldn't be manipulated and he couldn't be manhandled into a conversation or be forced to do something. Jesus could not be manipulated. He had no handles. Why? Because the flesh, the sinful fallen nature of us, that part of us has a lot of handles. And because it has a lot of handles, we're looking for handles too. But you know what doesn't have handles? The flesh has handles. You know what doesn't have handles? The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ has no handles. Remember when, when Jesus is carrying a cross up, up the road via Della Rosa, up to Calvary, and he, and he just falls under the weight of the cross? And then, and then Simon comes. He's, he's called to carry the cross up to Simon from North Africa. It's called to come and to carry the cross the cross is awkward. It has no handles. It's not ergonomic for the flesh. The cross is, is, is un- inconvenient. It's, it's in the way all the time. It's, it's not pretty. It's not attractive. It's not sexy. It's not, it's not all these words that we use today in, in, in the world that we live in. Why? Because the cross is the means of where our flesh ends and Christ's life, Christ's joy, Christ's peace... Christ's faith, Christ's uh, everything in him it becomes born again in us and we begin to live in something. The cross is something that is just not, it's not beautiful. It's like, I remember I was at a wedding years and years ago and it was a great couple getting married and right in the, you know, right in the middle of the stage they had this cross. <laughs> kind of like this big cross right in the middle of where they were getting married. And as they're getting married, they're like, you know, they got the cross between them, you know, and then and, and, and the pastor doesn't know why it's there. You know, he's trying to get around it. And it's just kind of like in the way the whole time. And then at the end of the wedding, you know, at the end of the wedding, the pastor said, you know, I just I got to ask you one question. Like, what is this, you know, why did you want to have this? He said, because I always want to have the awkwardness and the, and the inconvenience of the, cro- of the cross in, in the midst of everything in my life and in the midst of my marriage. And I remember he said that. We were like, wow, that's amazing. The cross of Jesus. You know, the cross is not something that happened to Christ, by the way, okay? Let's think about what's happening now in the world of politics, the world of health, the world of economics, the world of everything. The cross didn't just happen to Christ. The cross was something that Christ zeroed in on. That's why he said, I've come to do the Father's will. He said, I was born to do this. He woke up in the morning and he sought out the cross. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Things like that. I don't wake up in the morning and think, How, I'm going to look for opportunities and ways I could die today, to be crucified. Why? Because Jesus had in his mindset the love of the Father and his love for you and I. And that was, it was set before him, and you couldn't shake him from that. And he had no handles. The, the, the flesh is looking for handles. By the way, if there's an area of the flesh that you and I are living in, it's an area the devil can grab and just whip you around. Is there something that really offends me in my life? Yes, there is. Every one of us in this room. There are things that just get us off, that, like, that make us upset. It, it is because in that area of my life, there is a, there's a, there's a, a handle. And that handle is a result of a mindset, a way of thinking that is deeper than my behavior. But it's, it's something that is it's, it's, it's a, a symptom of a broken and sick heart. And the and if, and if there's and the cross comes in and the cross just crushes that. And you know what the cross is? The cross is not just circumstances that happen to me. 
The cross is something that, that, that proves to me that the will of God in my life is impossible to fulfill without God. You know what the cross is? The cross is, um, somebody, say somebody is struggling with an addiction of some kind. And they're saying, I can't, I can't win. I can't win over this. I can't get victory over this. I need counseling. I need this. I need that. And you know what happens? The cross comes in. You know what the cross says? There's no way that you can change your flesh. There's no way that you can change your heart. Like the leopard has spots. You can't change his spots. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. You need a new mind. And that can only come through a cross. And when we begin to look at Christ on the cross, like like those people in the desert... Uh, the Hebrews in the desert, when the, when the snakes were biting them, they were told to look away and look at the cross. When we see Jesus on the cross, that does something to us as human beings. It changes us on the inside. And um, we're, we're, we are healed from our, our handles. And then lastly, the hands of Christ are painfully neither open nor closed. What do we mean by that? What, what do we mean by that? Jesus in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, said he was crucified in weakness. He was crucified in weakness. You know that some, sometimes people say, well, I'm really closed-fisted about this issue. You ever hear that? I'm really closed-fisted about this issue. No, no I'm, I'm determined. Uh, Lenin was closed-fisted about communism. I mean, there's a lot of things, and, and this fist is actually in a position for to fight. Like, I'm, I'm ready to go to war about this. And then then, uh, then, the, then you have the philosophy of Buddha. Buddha's, Buddha had these, if you look at his, the old, he had these beautiful webbed hands, right? And they're really, you look at them and you're like, you know, in, in the East, they look at the hands of Buddha and they say, these are beautiful hands. And they're open and they're accepting of everybody and they just accept everything without any critical thinking. And, and, this is, and this is kind of Buddha's hands that like, it is what it is. We got to make peace with it. Jesus' hands were not open like Buddha's and they weren't closed like Lenin's. Jesus' hands were nailed to a cross. They were nailed to a cross. They were nailed to a cross. And I know this is kind of some heavy thinking to do. Jesus' hands were nailed to a cross that was awkward. It was uncomfortable. Circumstances and the will of God is going to deliver us over to the cross. Are there things that are happening? And this is a practical application. Are there things happening in your life that you just wish, I'm in a position, I can't get a grip? I'm in a position I feel like I'm constantly sliding. Uh, I feel like I don't, have, I don't have a good stance. I don't feel like I'm functioning from a position of strength. I don't feel like I'm functioning from a position of victory. You know something that is probably most likely the will of God in your life and in my life that is delivering us over to a cross where we just say, God, there's nothing I can do. I can't be closed-fisted. I can't be open-fisted. I can't be open-fisted about this. I just got to agree with you and say, God, Help my unbelief. I believe. I help my unbelief. And as soon as we surrender to the cross, are you following me? I'm going to finish here. Are you following? When we surrender to what God's doing, we say, you know what? This is the hand of God, and I'm going to look for God in this. And I'm going to confess readily to God. I believe, but help my unbelief. And when we do that, we're not looking for the handles. We're not looking for blame. We're not looking to like, you know, I'm this way because this is the way I was brought up, or my, or my ethnic history, or my. Or, or the, all these handles that we're looking for in society, these things are just, they're just security for the flesh. And God wants to deliver us out of, God wants to deliver us from our handles. And God's going to say, that's a handle, and that person has authority, that person has authority in your life to take your joy because you have a handle there that you just need to let go of. 
Put on Christ. And this is a practical application. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. When we put Christ on in our circumstances, we're not looking, we're not fighting for our rights. You know, Paul was delivered over to the Roman government, and he could have lawyered up. I'm sure he could have. And sometimes he did. He pulled out his, his Roman passport and said, guys, I'm a Roman. Jesus could have, he could have lawyered up as he was being falsely accused, but there was something higher in Jesus' mind, and that was to communicate the love of God. The love of the Father is this, he comes into our life, he is speaking into our life, he is building us up, he is changing us, and we don't need to live with handles any longer. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you.